good to see you this morning. Um, it's, um, if you have your Bibles, whatever format you use them, use them in electronic or paper or whatever, turn to Daniel chapter 2, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll continue there this week. We've been for the last three weeks in the, in the book of Daniel. If you can't find the book of Daniel, if you want to know where it's at, here's my Bible. You open up the Bible, here it is. It's about halfway. Go about halfway and go a little bit further than halfway, and you'll find the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, we began a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, this book and about the importance of it. It's, it's kind of a book of paradoxes. A paradox means something that's two opposites that seem to be really opposite things, but they, they some way fit together. And, uh, and so the book of Daniel is that because it's got 12 chapters. The first six chapters deal with um, stories that we're all familiar with, stories that uh, even if you didn't grow up in church, but maybe if you've been around, you've heard stories of Daniel in the lion's den, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and all those kind of things, the kids' stories that uh, so often we think of when we think of the book of Daniel. But then the last six chapters of Daniel are, are chapters that deal with uh, things that are st- visions that Daniel had about the future, and things that, that sometimes that cause even very... Uh, very deeply centered uh, uh, theologians' problems and how to interpret it. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there, by the way, okay? We're going to spend most of our time in the first six chapters. And so we've been in this, uh, in the first chapter two weeks ago. Last week we were in the second uh, chapter, the first part of the second chapter. We'll look at the second part of it uh, this week. Now, one of the things that Daniel, the big picture of Daniel is this. It deals with, with, with the two tests in life that we have. The two tests in life that all of us go through is this. It's the test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And while we don't sit around and think about these as tests, the reality is that it really are tests that we all have to deal with because the test uh, of adversity is not to give in to despair during times of, 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 uh, of trouble, uh, not to doubt God's love, his power, his presence in our life during those times when things are going poorly. That's the test of adversity. But the test of prosperity, on the other hand, is the challenge uh, to not forget God. Because so often what happens when we get to a place in our lives where we, we go through prosperity, we kind of forget God and we kind of go our own way and, 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 not, and we become self-sufficient and sometimes proud. And so we have these two tests. And so the book of Daniel, in a real sense, the, one of the big picture things is it deals with how do you do this in a way that would honor and please God and make your life the best it can possibly be. That's kind of the second level, second tier kind of, of thing about the book of Daniel. But the, bit, the main point of the book of Daniel is this, though, that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. Uh, Daniel says this several times in the book of Daniel, but particularly in Daniel 5.21, where it says, he says, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. And so we're going to look at that again today because we began to look at this last week. And just to kind of bring you up to speed, if you weren't here last week and you're not familiar with the first or the second chapter of the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, the second chapter, deals with what I would call an impossible situation. And we talked about last week, how do you deal with impossible situations in your life? If you missed it, you can go back and listen to that as well. But in, in, uh, in chapter 2 of the, of the book of Daniel, we read that the king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And we talked about last week the reality that dream, well, we all have dreams at times, and sometimes we can remember them, sometimes you can't. But the ones we remember sometimes probably weren't as bizarre as the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
But uh, the dream he had, though, uh, and the problem, the impossible situation was, is that he had this dream, and he calls his advisors in, these people that are astrologers and magicians and diviners and all these different people in, and who normally, when he had a dream, he would call them in, and he'd say, hey, tell me what this dream means. And this was a common occurrence then. But what happened was, in this case, and with this dream, it was so impactful uh, to Nebuchadnezzar that what he did is he said to the guys, he said, I want to make sure this is a real, this is, you're just not pulling my leg, you're not just telling me a bunch of stuff. He said, what I want you to do is not only interpret the dream, but I want you to tell me what the dream was, then interpret the dream. And they're going like, sure, that's not going to happen. And they talk about it, and then they say to him, and he doesn't like it, he says, they say there's no, it's impossible. Only the gods, that's what they use the term, only the gods could interpret dreams like that can tell you what's going on. And so he asked him to do it. He says, well, if you don't, guys, here's the deal. If you don't interpret, if you don't tell me what I dreamed and interpret the dream, here's the two options you have. Number one, you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. Not only I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you really bad. Because I'm going to cut you up in pieces and I'm going to throw you away along with your family and everybody else around you that knows you. I mean, that's basically what this, this psycho king wanted to do. The other thing is this. He said, but the good news is, the good news is if you can tell me what I dreamed, if you can interpret your dream, help me to understand the dream, what's going to happen is, is I'm going to make you wealthy and give you a place of prominence in my kingdom. And man, you will be fit for, uh, uh, set for life in, in, in your life. And so that was what we talked about. And last week, we talked about that and then... Everybody was, was freaking out. All these guys were going crazy. But one guy, his, his name was Ariok, who was the commander of the guard, went out to, to carry out the thing he's, that, Daniel told, I mean, that Nebuchadnezzar told him to, to go out and kill all the wise men. Daniel and his free, three friends were considered wise men in the kingdom. They hadn't been in on the meeting about this, and so they heard about it. And so Daniel goes and he tells the king, he says, King, give me just, a, just give me a little bit of time and I will tell you what the dream was and what the interpretation was. At that point in time, Daniel didn't know what it was. But he knew he had a God who could tell him what it was if he wanted to. And so we, we, we read last week the first 23 verses of, of Daniel chapter 2. And we get to the point of where he tells the king this. And uh, I tells the king, he's, God has told him the dream, and he, and he basically, Daniel and his friends praise God through, uh, through the situation. And then we come to the actual dream today. We're going to talk about this and what it means for us and how important it is as well. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 and following say, say it this way. Um, then Daniel, <clears throat> after he had told the king that he was going to interpret the dream, then Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon, even though they deserve it. That's not in there. But I mean, it's, they, they were just shysters. They told all kinds of stuff that wasn't true. But anyway, he says, do not uh, execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. And Arioch, now I love what Arioch does. Arioch turns this around and makes himself look good. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once, and he says, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. I mean, did Arioch find a man? No, Daniel found Arioch, but, you know, that's the way we do sometimes. We make ourselves look good in spite of the circumstances uh, so we can pump ourselves up. Anyway, so he takes him to, to the king. Verse 26 through 28. The king asked Daniel, and Daniel was also had a Babylonian name, was Belteshazzar, which is kind of a strange thing. 
And he says this. He says, are you able to tell me, the king says, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, this is a great reply, and think what it says. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. He said, nobody can do that, and I can't do it either. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's going like, nobody can do this. I'm a wise man. I can't do this. But there is a God in heaven who can do this. Daniel responds in a way that puts the focus not on himself, but on God. This solution had been anticipated by the inability of the Babylonian uh, back in verse 11. You can look back there. The wisdom teachers there had said nobody can interpret it except the gods. And they knew that the gods, their gods weren't real gods, but they worshipped them anyway. And so what he did is he said only God can do this. Now, Daniel bears witness to the God who speaks what he says, uh, a life-giving message, and he says he's the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Verse 28b. He has shown, this is what he says, Daniel says, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. And he's saying, this dream you're having is a dream about the future. It's about the things that's going to happen. He said, your dreams and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And then he begins to tell the dream. I tells him what he dreamed. And the only way that he can know this is because God reveals it to him. So let's look at that this morning, then we'll talk a little bit about the application of what it says. He says this, Daniel says, and he tells about the dream. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive. Once again, Daniel is, is humble here. He's going like, it's not because I deserve to have this, but because God is great. But so that your majesty, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Now the question I have here when I start to think about this is this. This is about the future. This is, in a sense, a prophecy. And who does God give the prophecy to? A prophet? Somebody who's a follower of him? No. He gives it to a psychotic king. Named Nebuchadnezzar, a guy who, who says, if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to slice you up. And if you do tell me the dream, I'll make you great. So he has no, you know, there's no, there's only extremes with Nebuchadnezzar. In a sense here, we see God working in a mysterious way here that we usually don't see him working that often. I mean, he did work that way back in, in, in uh, earlier in the scripture, in Genesis chapter 41, where, where he, uh, the Pharaoh at that time had a dream, and, and a guy named Joseph interpreted the dream, but it was kind of a dream about something that was going to happen. And we see, this is not the first time this has happened, but what happens here is, is God decides in his own way to, to use this kind of crazy king, to, and he gives them the dream. And the interesting thing here is this, is when Daniel interprets the dream, very clearly he, here in these verses, what he says, he doesn't see glory for himself. Daniel doesn't say, say, hey, look at me. But he made it a point that God received all the credit. And the thing I think about as well when I think about this verse is this, this should be the attitude of every person who calls himself a follower of God. When God does something and, and, and we're the instrument of his doing something, whether it's the simple or miraculous or whatever, we should always point to God. 1 Peter 2.12 says it this way. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
saying that you know the Christian should be a person who, who doesn't draw attention to themselves, but always point to, points and, and reflects their, their attention towards God. And then he goes on with, in verse 31, he talks a little bit more. He says, you saw the stream, it's about the future. He said, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue. This is pretty normal. For some reason, in, in, the, in, in that time and day when they had dreams, there was a lot of dreams about giant statues. I don't know what's the deal. You know, we don't dream, I don't know how many ever had a dream about a giant statue. I've never had a dream about a giant statue anywhere. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or something you have. You know, sometimes you have dreams about things you thought about or something like that. But, but this must be a deal here. Okay. It was about a, a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, appear, awesome in appearance. And then he starts telling what the statue looks like. So obviously, Daniel is not just some kind of a, just kind of a vague interpretation, but an exact interpretation. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its bellies, belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And then he says this, he says, well, okay, there's this cool statue made of all these precious metals. It starts at the top with gold and it kind of works itself down to, to other less precious metals in the, in the feet were, were part clay, part iron. And, 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 and so he talks about it, he says, but, verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. See, Daniel tells the king what the dream was, and now he gives an interpretation in the next few, few verses. He says this in verse 36, and we're going to read through this and come back. It says, this was the dream. Now, let me tell you what it meant. Let me interpret it for you, because that's a strange dream. If you had that dream, would you have a clue what it meant? Nah, you'd probably go like, you know, bad pizza. I don't know what the deal is. You know, whatever the deal is, you know, it's, it's something weird that's happening here, but I don't know what it means. So Daniel will give you some interpretation, because this dream was important. He says, Daniel says, verse 36, this was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you're the king of kings. He's kind of building him up. You know, he knows this guy's psychotic, but he knows how to deal with people. He says, the king of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air. At that time, Babylonian kingdom was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And at that point, probably Nebuchadnezzar was going like, yeah, man, that's cool. I'm the head of gold. I'm the top of the statue. I'm like the big dude. But he goes on, okay? D Daniel tells the truth. After you, another kingdom will arise. Basically, which means what? Now, Dan uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking about the future. He's only thinking about now. He says, after this, another kingdom will arise, which means your kingdom's going to fall. You're going to be out of here. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to be bothered with that because he's like so many of us, he focuses only on today. Only on today. That's why most Americans don't have savings. I'm just thinking of a financial advisor sitting over here in front of me. Over here. Okay, and the thing is, is, he can probably tell me the truth. I mean, most Americans have such a small percentage of savings because all we do is we live for today. And Nebuchadnezzar, we're thinking like, well, it's just an American problem. No, it's, it's a man, mankind problem. He said, after you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Now, that's, you know, yeah, you're going to get wiped out, but it's going to be inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, 
will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as the iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. So basically, this, this kingdom of iron is going to be a powerful kingdom that becomes a world-dominating uh, kingdom. He said, just as you saw, verse 41, just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be the divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes, toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than the iron mixes with clay. Now, let me stop here a minute and say this. I read five commentaries in preparation for this message. Every commentator has a different take on exactly what this, well, not totally, but kind of like various forms of what this means, what the different kingdoms are and what all these different things mean. But let me explain something to you. It's all speculation. We don't know. It, you know, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, the gold kingdom, the gold head is you, but everybody else that comes after you, he said it'll be in other kingdoms. What does it mean? And some, and if some people will put it like, well, the Medi Persian kingdom, which comes right after, is going to be the next one. And then the, the, the Greek is going to be next, and the Romans are going to be next. And, you know, it's kind of like that deal. <clears throat> I don't think it's in, that important to know exactly which ones are going to be what, because the bigger point is this. The bigger point is this. The vision that this uh, intent tends to communicate is something more general, general, but also, I think, more grand, that God is sovereign, that he is in control despite present conditions, and that kingdoms will come and kingdoms will go. But God's kingdom is going to reign forever. Because in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the picture here, uh, we, we see that the kingdoms are made of different materials, different things. Every kingdom, every kingdom that's been upon this earth has come to an end at some time. Are there, is, it, is there still a Roman kingdom? Well, not the way it was years ago. Every kingdom, that includes one called the American kingdom. We think we're invincible. Everybody thinks, we're in, everybody thinks that whatever kingdom they're in is invincible, lasts forever. But even we, as we know it, and I'm not trying to be a downer here, is to realize that God is ultimately the only king, God's kingdom is the only one that ultimately will reign. And while the statue in the, in the picture starts out in grandeur and beauty, it ends in weakness. And, and matter of fact, you know, the, the expression, you've heard the expression that someone has feet of clay, it came from this verse of Scripture. And feet of clay means somebody who's strong, but they have some kind of weakness in their life that causes them to stumble. And so we see that here, that, that uh, the language for that is here as well. Verse 44 and 45, in, those, in the time of those kings, the, king, the God of heaven, talking about when the rock will come, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is what the meaning of the division of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands means. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is worthy. See, the statue was, was, in this dream was to represent all the world kingdoms, not just 
specific ones. I think it's more general. I think it's, it's about the reality that there's kingdoms that come and go. But the important thing about this is this. They contrast that and the rock that is hewn, and it says not by human hands. It is only by God is that which will reign forever. And we look at this and, and we ask ourselves, well, why was he given giving him this, why was he giving him this kind of dream at this time? Think of the situations of the Jews at the time. They were in captivity. They had been through a lot of stuff, and they're going like, is this all there is? Folks, I don't know about you guys, but we live in a country, I read about three online newspapers every day, okay? I read, I read the Peer Journal Star, I read the Washington Post, and, and I also read the USA Today, every day online, okay? Not everything, but a lot of stuff. And I don't know if you read that stuff all the time, but if you read it, you could be depressed. There's a lot of stuff every day. I mean, every day recently, what, what have we been reading in the newspaper that would get us depressed? I mean, terrorist bombings. Uh, uh, about a year ago, uh, uh, on my way to Israel, I went through the, the airport at Istanbul. I was in the section where, and I know some other people just got back from Greece, was in the section, the International Arrivals Terminal, where a bunch of people were killed. I'm going like, wow, that could have been us. That gets you depressed to think about that? Can make you afraid, yeah. And then, in, then we think, well, that's far away. But then we think about, well, down in Florida, uh, some whack job comes in and, and, and kills a bunch of people in a nightclub. And then we read about things everywhere else. And we start seeing all this stuff. We're going like, man, it's depressing. And let me tell you what makes people, what's, what's on the news all the time now? And you know what I'm going to talk about Politics. I have never had, I've never been, and I've, I've, I started voting for presidents back, and I'm trying to think who was even running against them, when Richard Nixon was going to be the president. That was my first presidential election. I voted for Tricky Dick, okay? <laughs> Didn't know he was going to be kind of a mess. But, you know, the reality is, is that was far away. I've been through all these years, all these presidential elections and all the stuff, and I've never heard so many people so just defeated by the fact of people of both parties who, who were just going like, who are we going to vote for? Captain Obvious? You haven't seen the commercials, have you? Anyway, <clears throat> and people are just so discouraged and, and, and they constantly are back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, usually people are getting all hype. I was reading this morning, people get all hyped for conventions, you know, and stuff. And it said a lot of the the Republican convention's coming up, and a lot of the main people are not even going to show up, it says. I mean, we live in a time, and, I'm, and, and no, we're not under, uh, under uh, uh, Bab, uh, rule, ruled by the Babylonians right now. We're not as bad as the Jewish people were in the day of, of David and, uh, Daniel and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we need encouragement, do we not? Because when we look around the world, we're going like, no matter how, who wins the presidential election, we're going to be messed up. <laughs> Is that the way you feel? That's the way I feel. I'll just be honest. And I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not I'm, you know, if you've been here for 14 years, I don't talk politics, okay? That was as political as I'll ever get, okay? But the reality is it causes, but then I got to step back. I got to step back and go, okay, Daniel says, the dream in this vision says, what? A kingdom's come and go. But God's kingdom will reign forever. 
If you've read this book and you believe this book, who wins in the end? You don't know? God does. And you don't have to read Revelation, the last book, to understand that because all the way back in the Old Testament in Daniel, it points toward the future, and the future says that God is the one who reigns. God is in control. Even though it doesn't seem like it sometimes, he has an ultimate plan because he allows us freedom, and our freedom in his world, mess, we mess things up. But God not only rules, but he overrules things in, in history, and he can make it happen. What was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's... Uh, <laughs> A deal when he comes to the end of this, uh, uh, after Daniel shares, shares with him this, this story. Okay, yeah, he was excited because he was the head of gold, but he'd also found out he wasn't going to last forever, and things weren't going to be great. But then in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar, after he hears the dream, and Daniel says the interpretation of the dream, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the, and the king of kings, the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. I mean, he likes it. I mean, De Nebuchadnezzar is ecstatic, but he goes, God, I finally understand. Doesn't it make you feel good in life when you're going through a struggle, you're trying to figure out what's going on, you can't figure it out, and finally you get a, you get a direction? Even if it's not perfect, it's at least the direction. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Nebuchadnezzar... And he does this, and he bows down to, to Daniel, but we've got to understand that culture. In that culture, when you bow down to a person, you weren't, you weren't worshiping that person, you were worshiping, worshiping that person's deity. That's, that's how the culture was. So we don't see that in our culture, but that's what the culture was. So in keeping with Nebuchadnezzar's pagan background, the king was giving respect and reverence to Daniel, but also he's acknowledging that Daniel was the messenger of the eternal God, the revealer of secrets. Now, when we see this and he's worshiping, did that mean that Daniel became a follower of God? We could gather that, but read the rest of Daniel and, and figure that out. Next, next week, we'll just blow it away, okay? How can he do that? How can he be excited? Well, I found that out when I went to Africa a few years ago, and we were, we were out among the tribes in Mali and, and the Yolanka. We were so excited because we were going from village to village, and we were sharing with them about the great, create, great creator God. And let me tell you, that was the most, the people were so accepting of the message. But then we started looking deeper. But see, they'd had Muslims come through 50 years before and share with them about the Muslim faith. And they also believed in what they call animistic faith, which is kind of a, of a, of a faith that deals with nature and, and the spirits in nature. And so what it is, they just kind of added Christianity on to all the others. So they had kind of this weird Muslim, animistic, Christian belief system. And we're going like, how can they believe all that at one time? Because they were willing to acknowledge that it was all true. They didn't say that, well, you know, uh, you know they can, uh, they have to uh, believe in just one God. And we told them, we said, we said clearly, said, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you got to give up animism and you got to give up Muslim, the Muslim Islam religion. You got to do all, you got to do all that. Now, whether they will is another question. And you're thinking, well, how foolish people, you know, to say that we don't do that kind of stuff, do we? You know, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we go all in. Not. 
We don't follow other gods or other religions, but we follow the religion of consumerism or the religion of this or the religion of that. I just simply ask you the question, how does, would people look at you? Would they know in a real sense who you follow by simply following your lifestyle? Would they see differences in your life? Because the reality is in Daniel's life and his friend's life, when the people knew and every time that they came to a decision place in their life there, what happened is the, the, the leaders knew that Daniel and his, and, his, and his friends were different. They weren't weird different. They were just different because they followed God with their whole heart. And then it kind of concludes in verses 48 and 49. It says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men, all the guys he saved the lives for, by the way, you know. And moreover, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, and while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar kept his promise. As crazy as he was... Remember back at the beginning I shared with you, read the early part of verse, I think it was uh, early on in the, in the chapter, he says, if you answer, if you can interpret the dream, what I'm going to do to you, if you can, I'm going to kill you. If you can, I will, I, will, uh, I will make you great and give you all kind of stuff. And he does. And as you begin just in these first two chapters, and once again, remind you, I didn't really talk about this at the beginning. When Daniel does this, he is a, he's in his late teens, when he's, when he's taken into captivity, probably 15, 16 years old. And this was only like three years later. And here's this young man growing up, and we see him growing up. As we see him growing up, becoming a man, we get, began to get this composite picture of Daniel. And this is what it looks like. He's composed before crisis. I mean, when crisis comes, does he freak out? No, he's composed. He's as cool as a cucumber. Uh, he's courageous before the captain who is to take his life. Ariok, I mean, Ariok had, had been told to, bring, to, to take him out, to kill him. He could have done it, and he would have done, done his job. But he's, but he's courageous before the captain. He's confident before God in prayer. I mean, when, when, when this crazy king tells him, you know, unless you tell me the dream, he said, uh, I'm not going gonna, gonna, to take you out. And he, he's confident that God's going to give him the answer. He's careful before his success to give praise to the Lord. When things happen in a good way, he doesn't take the praise himself. He's careful to give praise to God. And then when God answers his prayer, he's contrite in his spirit. He's humble in his spirit. When I read about this and I think about this, I think God is just waiting to find other folks who will fall into that pattern so he can bless them as he blessed Daniel. See, God communicated to a pagan king not only the future events in his life, but also the life of the world. This was a bigger picture thing. And, and it, it shouldn't surprise us, if, if for those of us who have God's word and have read scripture, it shouldn't surprise us who God uses. I mean, he could use a teenage boy, teenage boys here. But, he, you know, he used a donkey to rebuke the money-loving prophet Balaam. He used, he commissioned a raven to carry fresh meat to the prophet Elisha. He ordered a rooster to rebuke Peter. Never thought of it that way, right? But he did. And so we ask the question, why now? Why, why did God choose a time like this with his people in captivity to reveal so great a prophecy? 
because God wanted to give them encouragement and help them to know that there is, he was God, and even though the situation was so bad that he was in control. And the reality is this, we're not meant to be kept in the dark about Daniel's prophecies. When Jesus was telling his disciples about the signs which would point to the way of his second coming, he said in Matthew 24, 15, he says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, the things that causes the end times, he says, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. He's saying to us, he said, Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament is not just for Daniel in his time, but it's for us as well. And so when I read the daily news on my multiple uh, apps and stuff, I don't know about you, but I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled many times about the actions that mankind takes. I mean, why are some people acquitted of terrible crimes and others sentenced to years in prison for minor infractions of the law? Why do we pay athletes enormous sums of money to play a game when we, by comparison, pay educators a penance who are shaping the future of our children? Who is more important? Why do we do that? That's insane. I don't understand politicians who promise tax cuts and raise taxes, and we still elect them. I don't understand people who have children and abuse them. I don't understand honor roll, honor roll students who drink themselves into a stupor. And I don't even try to understand women who shop with no intention to buy. <laughs> That's anti-man. <laughs> or I don't understand teenagers who can talk for an hour on a phone without taking a breath. I don't know how, they ha how that happens. But in this story in Daniel 2, I can understand I can understand because here's the simple truth of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel and his friends succeeded because they humbled themselves before God and allowed him to use them. James 4.10 says it this way, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't seek, so often we seek the miraculous, but don't seek the miraculous, seek, seek the miraculous God and he will lift you up. When the time comes, the core concern uh, of this passage was not the content of the dream or even its interpretation, but on Daniel's God-given ability to interpret the dream. The focus is on the content, on the context between the Babylonian wise men and their wisdom, their learning, and Daniel, where the magicians, the enchanters, the uh, sorcerers, and astrologers of Babylon failed. Daniel succeeded. Why? Because the text is structured to highlight the answer to this question. Right in the middle of this whole text in chapter 2 is verse 23. And Daniel articulates it well when he says this, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what was asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of my king. See, only God's wisdom, according to Daniel 2, can reveal the mysteries of life. Only God's wisdom. Human wisdom falls short. 
So where will we find the wisdom necessary to live in a world of growing complexity? Many think it's through intelligence. But biblical wisdom is more than a knowledge of facts. Biblical wisdom is more like a skill, a knowing how, rather than a knowing what. It's based on our relationship with Christ. Wisdom is divinely giving ability to have insight as to the best way to live life. And biblical wisdom goes even further. It points to the solution. The solution to that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. What does it mean in practical terms? It means we live life in a troubled and confusing world in a relationship with Christ, and no matter what comes, we can gain uh, wisdom and, and direction in conversation with him. And how do we have that conversation with him? Simple, folks. We don't have to have dreams. We have a completed revelation. We have his word. Daniel didn't have this. But we have his word. And as we pray and as we seek God through a relationship with him, a conversation with him, and we, and we hear him speak through his word, God gives us truth and he gives us hope. See, wisdom is a relationship that produces a mindset, a way of looking at the world. And it looks at the world through the eyes of Christ. My challenge to you is, is to understand what this passage says. The only way that we can live life the way God wants us to, the only way we can live life in a confusing world and not go crazy and be as nuts as Nebuchadnezzar was, is to live it in conversation with God, in communion with God, and allow him to direct our lives. Not just on Sundays, but every day of the week in every decision we make. Where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God? This morning as we close, I ask our band to come on out, and uh, they're probably back there somewhere hanging out waiting for me to pray, but I'm just going to tell them to come on out. Um, let me ask this. If, if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, that's the starting point. The starting point is to say, hey, I've been doing it my own way, and my life is a mess. I may, I may look good on the outside, but inside I'm a mess. And I want to tell you the only solution to cleaning up the mess is not to get smarter. I know a lot of smart people that are messed up. It's about having a relationship with God that he begins to work in your life and give you wisdom, biblical wisdom, on how to live life every day. And you can start, a, new, you can start a, a relationship with Christ by simply saying yes to him, saying you don't have to have any special words, you don't have to have any special thing you do. You just simply have to recognize, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a person who does it my own way. God, I want to quit lead, leading my own life, and I want you to lead my life. And you say that to him. And then, God, from this point forward, what I want to do is I want to follow you day to day, whatever that means. I want to get into your word. I want to pray. I want to seek your face, God. I want to know what it is. I want to know what it is that it takes to live life in a way that would help me out of the mess that we're in in this world. And while none of us are in the mess that Dan Daniel and his friends were, we're not captive. We're at least not captive to another nation. Sometimes we're captive to our own lifestyles and our own sins. And God wants to free us of that.
And so you begin by doing that. And if you're already a follower of Christ, but you're not really following in all areas of your life, I would ask you this. What area of your life that, have you not given total control of God over to? Is your relationships? Is your finances? It's your career? Whatever it is, God wants to direct that as well. So let's pray right now. And let's seek his face. God, I turn to you this morning. I ask that you would just guide us. That you would, you would guide us as we seek you this morning, God. That you would open our minds, our hearts to your truth. That you would enable each one of us, God, to understand clearly what it is that um, you want us to do. What our next step is. God, we do live in a messed up world. And it's not you that messed it up, God, it's us. And the only way that we can live life and make sense of all the stuff that's around us is by living in connection with you, God, like Daniel and his friends did. It wasn't that they were great, you know, smarter than everybody or anything else. They simply were more connected with you, God, in their time. So help us, God, help us, God, to learn how to live life in such a way that would honor and please you and help us take the next step we need to, whether it be to say yes to you as Lord and Savior or to say yes to you, God, in some area of our life that we've been holding back from. Guide us now, God, and help us to live life in a way that would honor and please you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.